Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Patrick Cummins, the Executive Director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Patrick, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting Podcast. Today I'm joined by Patrick Cummins, the Executive Director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Patrick, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jake. I want to hear a little bit about your background. You have a long, uh, distinguished list of places you've been and lived and worked and, and certainly talk about the the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation in more detail. But why don't you just start with some of your background and how things led towards you being the Executive Director? Thanks, Jake. The uh, Yeah, it's it, it's been a long run. And um, I'm 38 years old now, and so you say, "Wow, it's not that old." But long run. But I have been, and this is not uh, understating it. I've been obsessed with horse racing for as long as I can remember, and um, it really started, I'd say, sometime in the late 80s when my parents got cable television, and you know, I went from being a kid that had seven channels to to 70. And one of them was basically like a, an old cable access channel that broadcast the races from what was then known as Philadelphia Park. And I truly just found horse racing in that capacity and was mesmerized as a kid. Um, it was the, 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 the race announcing, the commentary, uh, the numbers, uh, all of it that just it hit me kind of right in the sweet spot and – uh, I was always into sports. Uh, I was always into broadcasting. I was imitating radio announcers when I was a kid and um, loved sports and baseball in particular. But but there was something about horse racing that just attracted me and uh, even the gambling side of it from a very young age. And, um, you know, my mom's got pictures of me reading the sports page from when I was about six years old and, and before I'd go to school. And, you know, I'd, I'd study this and I'd look at the entries for racing and everything. And it was just something that uh, just hit me from that, from that early age. And I joke that I, I probably learned algebra by figuring out why it is that a horse that's nine to two pays $11 and figuring out that the variable was always the $2 that you got back from your original bet. And, um, you know, I took that through school and I was definitely the odd kid out when asked what your favorite sport was, because it was definitely horse racing. And, um, you know, Philadelphia is not exactly a bastion of horse racing, and my family had no real history in the sport. Uh, my uh, maternal grandmother liked to, to go to the track back in the day, and they'd go down to Haver de Grace in Maryland and Ladies' Day and things like that, and I would hear stories about that, but that was it. And so I was really kind of a self-obsessed child when it came to, to the sport, and my parents would take me to the races, and uh, every so often, we only lived about 15 minutes away from Philadelphia Park, which is now Parks Racing. And, um, you know, it was always my endeavor to be involved in the sport in some way, shape, or form. And um, when I was studying in college, I uh, I worked in the summers at, at, at the track in the television department and basically filling in for different people as they were on their summer holiday. And I got to know the racetrack announcer there and uh, a fellow named Keith Jones, who's still there and has been there probably over 30 years. And uh, basically became Keith's backup from about 1999 to 2009. It was something I did on the side, but I never really saw a full-time path into the sport for a while. And I worked in the uh, investment world for about seven years, getting out of school and just kind of kept racing on the side. It was essentially a hobby for me. Um, and, and I was fascinated with the international side of the sport. Uh, I loved racing in Dubai and Again, you know, not seeing a full way in, I saw there was a bit of an opportunity in, 
in covering the racing in Dubai. No one was doing it. And so I started my own website and, and covered the racing there and found myself over in Dubai several times a year, uh, basically funding it on my own uh, through points and, and whatnot that I had a, a, a accrued through through various work travel because I was doing a lot of that at the time and, and, and build up the contacts and build up the base and covered Dubai racing from afar for, for eight years. Um, and then I, I pivoted away from kind of the investment world. I went back to school, got my MBA and the whole goal was to to pivot into the horse racing business in some capacity. So then I, I ended up getting a role with Trackus, which I know you had the fellows from TPD, um, yep. you know, the well, race yep. tracking side. Yeah. And uh, I was involved in, in that industry or that cottage industry of race tracking with, with a company called Trackus. I was with them for four years and, and got to, to be on the business development side, a lot of traveling with them and really trying to build out the analytics of racing and, and what the data could possibly do. And then when I was in Hong Kong, um, a couple of years back, I was, I was recruited to, uh, to work for the Hong Kong jockey club. And man, I'll tell you what, as a racing obsessed lifer, the Hong Kong jockey club comes calling. It's tough to say no, uh, because to me, it's always been the gold standard. It was a real honor to be there. And I, I had the pleasure of spending a three-year contract with them running the uh, public affairs division for, for the racing business in Hong Kong. And that was a tremendous experience for so many reasons and coming, you know, stepping away from the American racing industry with all my other international experience that I'd had to, to just put yourself in the Hong Kong racing bubble for three years. It was almost like a PhD in racing administration and to see in the way in which they, they operate their business, they run their business um, and to have been a part of that and, and to work kind of the cross-cultural side was, was fantastic. And then I was presented with an opportunity. My contract was, was coming up and there had been some changes in Hong Kong and I was kind of pursuing, do I sign another contract? It had been offered to me. Um, or, or do I, do I return to America? Because there's no lack of things that, that can be done to help out the horse business in, in America. And uh, I was presented with the chance to, to start the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation and lead this essentially think tank for the sport, all privately funded. And uh, I, I thought that was a really good, um, a good position to take, especially with, with coming off the back of three years in Hong Kong and having had that experience. And so I decided to come home and, and we've been up and operational now for just more than a year. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the betting side of racing all the way from the late 80s when you're watching it on cable television to today. Does anything stand out as to that evolution and some of the things that you've obviously seen and witnessed from Philadelphia all the way through Hong Kong, other jurisdictions like Australia or South Africa or Mauritius or even here in the U.S.? You know, what? When, when, uh, there is a, an absolute current that runs through all of racing, and that is that this is, this is an analytical sport. Okay. It always has been. It's always, and it's really always been a gambling sport. And you hear the stories from some of your past guests um, of, of people who may not have made their bones in racing, but got their start following and being involved in gambling with racing. Uh, and the numbers, there, there will always be a, a set of people, a set of customers who are just uh, attracted by probabilities and statistics and information presented to them in um, with, with with a gambling opportunity, and I have to say that you know you can't exactly say a seven year old is predisposed to gamble, but it was just you know there was something about it that I found incredibly attractive and, and studying puzzles, and to be fair, I think and I was just having this conversation with a good kind of racing uh, betting partner of mine who uh, we, we go back more than a decade, which was that the ability to be able to handicap racing and to study racing, to study numbers, to study probability, to understand the way in which you behave um, when betting is involved, there are tremendous life skills, tremendous business skills that you learn and acquire in so doing. And so that is definitely a common thread that runs through the entire sport. Now, what is completely different is the way in which all these different jurisdictions operate. You mentioned Mauritius. I had the chance to go there in uh, um, probably about 14, 15 months ago and 
and experience racing in Mauritius. It's probably the most unique racing experience, maybe outside of Happy Valley in Hong Kong. Um, tremendously uh, popular. Um, they, they, it's a very small experience, but um, you know, a really good, uh, enjoyable approach. But the bookmakers run just about everything. Uh, the funding model is is a mess. Um, they they've had to cut back on stakes and prize money and and you know they're just trying to survive they're trying to send their signal to south africa they're trying to sell horses from south africa there everyone's looking for a way to get by in the business and, and survive markets change people change jake and 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 the, the customer changes and racing needs to be just as um adept as any other business um as a gambling venture um, just like, uh, you know, as, as market conditions warrant. Um, and one thing that I think we've seen, particularly in America, is a failure to innovate, a failure to change and present the gambling of racing uh, in a modern fashion. And we, we've seen other places do that far better than what we have here. So take me to Hong Kong for a moment. What stands out from... Hong Kong Racing, the Hong Kong Jockey Club, and just their overall betting approach. Is it a cultural thing for those who haven't been there? Is it an operational excellence? Is it just blind luck and a fluke that somehow it all works? Or what do you think makes Hong Kong so formidable on the betting side? So I had the chance to live in Happy Valley, um, probably about 1,200 meters from the winning post at the race course. And Happy Valley is a neighborhood uh, unto itself. Uh, to say that uh, the horse and the spirit of the horse in racing is ingrained in Hong Kong culture is um, is not an understatement in the least. The horses used to be stabled about a quarter mile up the hill from the Happy Valley race course kind of grounds. And every morning they would get out, they would walk down the hill, they would go and work out, and they would walk back up the hill and the horses would be cooled out by the time they got up there. Um, as cars and technology evolved, um, as, as concrete came into being and the streets were paved, um, the sound would reverberate through the buildings that were, that were blossoming in, in, in a very kind of concentrated district that became a really kind of very nice place to live and work and certainly to, to play at, at Happy Valley. Um, but you know, horses were a part of the city. And Hong Kong's only professional sporting outlet is horse racing. They have club soccer. Uh, they certainly bet on plenty of, of international soccer and football through, uh, through the Hong Kong Jockey Club's uh, monopoly on that. But you know, horse racing is the most professional sporting endeavor in that special administrative region. And when you had the, the, the handover from the British or the reunification to the Chinese – uh, it became a point to say um, the, the horses will keep racing and the people will keep dancing. This is okay. We're going to continue to allow this. And I think it's also pretty incredible to think that still to this day, now 23 years later, since the reunification of Hong Kong to China, uh, more money has never been bet on a single day in Hong Kong than the last day of British rule in Hong Kong. And it was, I think about 2.5 billion Hong Kong dollars was bet that day. And right now they average about 1.2, 1.3 billion Hong Kong. So to think that 22 years ago, 23 years ago, that that that, that was the record, it, they've never come close to it since, Jake. And uh, I think that really goes to show you just how uh, much a part of of it is. Look, you know, it's a city of 7 million people. And, you know, think about it in terms of, say, New York um, as, as just a comparable location. Um, there, there is no Yankee Stadium. There is no Madison Square Garden. There is no Barclays Center. Um, there's certainly no Giants Stadium on the periphery or, or MetLife Stadium on the periphery. There's Happy Valley Racecourse and there's Shaten Racecourse. Okay. And they have one stadium where they, they have the big rugby sevens and they have a couple soccer matches a year. But the great sporting outlet is racing. 
And so, you know, it is inevitably intertwined with Hong Kong and, um, you know, it, it gets the, the, the grandfather punters and it gets, um, it gets the young kids out in the, in the beer garden, um, on a Wednesday night. And it is the thing to do on a Wednesday night. And, you know, they average 25,000 people per race meeting. It, it's probably the highest anywhere in the world, um, in terms of a, a, a per capita for any particular jurisdiction. Japan has some, some, certainly some big meetings, but they have plenty of smaller ones too, uh, which would, which would drop their overall average number. It's a wonderful place. Um, but but the, the the betting turnover figures have not always been as rosy as as they uh, appear today and in recent years. You know, it, it is often forgotten that basically from just around the time of the handover up until about 2006, total betting turnover on Hong Kong racing declined precipitously. In about 2005 2006, they were talking about 60 billion Hong Kong dollars a year. Well, at the end of last season, it was more than I think 120 billion Hong Kong. Um, off of 88 race meetings, granted more race meetings than they used to have. But there was a significant turnaround in the fortunes of Hong Kong racing. And it really had to do with, with one main thing, and that was pulling money back from the offshore markets, which in the advent of the internet had just tremendously pulled money away from kind of the legal enterprise. And what did Hong Kong do? They instituted a rebate. It was, uh, I call it a losing rebate. So, so you don't rebate all play. You only rebate losing play. And on every Hong Kong $10,000 bet in the win place, Quinella or Quinella place markets, uh, they rebated a 10% uh, to any losing ticket, either a, a cash ticket or something that was done on account through, the, through one's jockey club account. And that's essentially equates to basically about U.S., uh, $1,200. Every bet over that, if you if you walked up and said, I want $1,500 US to win a number one and number one loses, you bring up your ticket and they'd give you the equivalent of $150 back. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, that model ever since they had done that, pretty much with very little exception, a couple blips in the road here or there, they've experienced almost nothing but, but, uh, but increases in turnover, attention, and they've done some tremendous work to uh, increase their awareness on the overseas market through commingling. So it's not as if they're not without some problems and some issues and some bumps in the road. But um, they realized what they had to do. They did it aggressively. And it really worked. Yeah, it's interesting. When you hear the word monopoly, often your mind drifts towards negative thoughts or something that you know maybe will result in laziness or something the opposite of what you said around understanding what you need to do and being aggressive is not something you often uh, relate to when talking on this subject. But is that model, the the Hong Kong Jockey Club monopoly model, a good fit for there? Or like what would happen if it was more of a free market and there was competition, do you think? Is it is it a bit of a perfect storm or what's your take on that? Well, let's be honest. It's a legal monopoly only, of course, right? So there are still plenty of gray operators uh, offshore that might be unlicensed in Hong Kong or other destinations or jurisdictions. Um, so, so they have the legal monopoly. They don't offer fixed odds betting uh, on racing outside of the jockey challenge. And they, they don't engage or embrace exchange rate, uh, wagering. And as you know, I mean, the story's been told uh, of late about Betfair's attempts to, to get into that market. And uh, they've just kind of pulled back from that and uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric, I think, on the Hong Kong side that is um, pretty strong and a lot of business rhetoric on the Betfair side. Um, and I think the business case on the Betfair side is very strong and, and logical. And it, it, it almost doesn't matter what the, the early numbers have started out to be um, even before they stopped. Um, and on the Hong Kong side, you know, I think they're going to have every reason to go to the local government and say, look at what has been happening. I think we need to evolve and change our market here as well. But the, 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 the lack of a laissez-faire attitude to just opening everything up is that the illicit market is really so strong. Um, so they're always being driven to keep things on the legal channels. And that has involved, um, 
you know, an evolution of the betting product. Look, people, people in America oftentimes say, oh, I, I wish we had the Hong Kong model. Now, granted, some things are just definitely not replicable, but um, Hong Kong, I always say, had everything that American racing punters said they wanted. Big fields, competitive races, lots of opportunities, lots of different wagering platforms, exotic bets. But the one thing they have, Jake, is late odds changes. The quote-unquote sharps, the computer players, what have you, pile into the markets late. Far more than anything that happens in America. In America, a horse goes from seven to two, or seven to one to seven to two, and Twitter goes up in a storm, and and people are, are complaining and they're writing letters and there's editorials in the in the industry magazines. In Hong Kong, a horse could go from forty to one to eight to one and win by two lengths, <laughs> and these are the largest per capita tote pools in the world, and people say, oh wow, you know they they pulled that one off. But you can look at the at the form and say this horse was probably overlaid at forty to one. And did you see the activity in the Quinella markets before the win price moved? So what do, what do you mean? So what did Hong Kong do to combat this? They said we are going to start showing people in a color coded system how the market is moving, just like they would in the stock market. Okay, and any time within the last five minutes. Uh, till till the race goes off, that a horse's price and either the win place Quinella or Quinella place pools dropped by 20% or more, there would be a green bar that would go around the the price that was being offered for the, uh, the, the Quinella or the Quinella place or winner place. And if it went to 50% or more, it would go brown. And without fail, over my three years there, you start to learn how the market evolves and you're looking and you're saying every combination with this number six horse is lit up in the Quinella pool. Six with the one, six with the two, six with the three, every one of them has gone green. And then invariably that money would come in the win market. So you could see and you could project it. And, and to be very frank, I say that they're trying to show people when they're going to get screwed. And, and you feel you, you don't feel as bad if you see it coming. So when I bet preservationist to win the Suburban at Belmont Park a couple of uh, months ago, and I bet $100 to win, and he's 7-1, to one, and there's four horses already in the gate, and I've put my bet in 7-1, to one, and he jumps out and is 7-2, to two, I'm like, man, I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. But our pools don't hold up to that. It, it, $20,000, dollars $40,000 is it might be all it takes to really move something that that big. But I bet if I saw the exacta pools a little bit clearer in a color-coded format, that I could probably see that that was going to happen. I bet if our operators were showing us slightly more clear the, the probable payouts and what these probable payouts in a market that's already closed, like the previous race's daily double pool, if it showed me, here's what the implied odds are on the wind pool based on the way in which this daily double is closed, and it tells me that this horse is probably going to go off at about four to one, he goes off at seven to two, I think, well, it's about right. So we haven't done those sorts of things in the sport. And I think it goes to maybe a greater point here in America that we're acting almost ignorant of all the other forms of gambling around us. Um, we've got to get off this island. We have to kind of join in this quest to modernize our own product. And there are plenty of really good examples to follow. And I think that's one of those things that could have been a real long-term negative for racing in Hong Kong if they weren't starting to show their customers, here is exactly where the money is going. And it pops the numbers off the screen for you to really make it clear. It's, you know, they, they just have an acute awareness of their customers and uh, it's shown in the business. Yeah, no, that's a that's a perfect example. And any time where you have the the one percent understanding exactly what's happening, and can articulate it and, and react to it, and the ninety nine percent cannot, for example, what was probably the case prior to the color coding in Hong Kong, then you're going to have some dissatisfied customers, and generally that's not a good idea. So it, it sounds like you know I think generally across the board racing moving forward has many challenges and one of them i want to talk about is is around the takeout obviously certainly here in the u.s now is legalized sports betting grips the nation we're seeing you know minus 105 nfl lines for example as a more of a staple than an outlier 
and you think about racing, often with the existing challenges that are already in place, some you've already touched on, but one of them is it's generally a, a higher takeout product, which is, for obvious reasons, it's it's pretty expensive as a sport. Obviously, the land costs money, the horses cost money, and, and so on and so forth. But from a from 2019 looking forward perspective, on the takeout issue or the product generally, what are some of the things that you're thinking about or your team is uh, marinating around modernizing the product? Without question, this is a, a prime issue, a prime concern for the sport. Um, one of the things I'd like to look at, you know, relative to this, may be kind of the incentive structure. Okay, you you mentioned it. Racing is a very expensive operation. It is incredibly. Um, it, it, it has a high land use. It uh, it's expensive to operate. You can't sell rights to the to the video to the streaming content. Um, so, so there is no other real revenue source other than what is coming in from wagering. A lot of tracks have abandoned admission fees, so ticketing is not really a big deal out of a few, with the exception of a few days a year. So it really comes down to the, the, the revenue that is derived from gambling. And what has happened over the course of time is the cost of gambling has gotten more expensive. Um, and we have introduced more and more exotic wagers that continue to really kind of zap uh, customers and, and you know, kill churn, which let's just get on the same page here. If we're looking at inflation-adjusted figures over the last 15 years, uh, inflation-adjusted wagering uh, through only tote means here in America, the only legal channel that exists, it's down almost 50% adjusted for inflation in 15 years. The raw figures are about 27% in 15 years. But um, that's a really significant decline. If, if, if we, right now, average in America is, is you know, a little over $11 billion a year on, on race uh, thoroughbred wagering. Um, if we adjusted the figure from 2004, that number becomes about $21 billion. So, so that's where we are from 21 to 11 with those inflation-adjusted figures. I mean, it is really um, – all the metrics are pretty negative there. The power in the sport has resided for so long with the racetracks and the horsemen. Now, the horsemen don't survive if they don't get a cut of this. All right? it is, it, it's what goes into prize money. It what's, it's what keeps the incentive structure in place for owners to own horses, for breeders to breed horses. Uh, for people to participate in the game. And the trainers otherwise and their staff are making uh, a bit of money from their daily fees on horses. But, you know, the real juice is coming when they they win races and when they run second in races and third in races and, and get a piece of that action. Um, what has happened is um, as slot machines, as other forms of gaming have come in to racetracks, we started out with what were essentially racinos. They're now basically, a lot of the times, they're, they're full-fledged casinos that have a racetrack on the grounds. Okay. Um, the, these operators have very little incentive to focus on growing their racing business. So the you know, tracks are not incentivized to compete to either obtain or retain racing betters when they have other forms of gambling that are much easier to sell, much easier, easier to maintain, um, cost far less, and, um, you know, the, are, are kind of surrounded by other sorts of entertainment and dining options. And, you know, it's the casino model. It's why there's, you know, 50 casinos in Vegas and not 50 racetracks. Okay. Um, the, the tracks have not been incentivized to price racing bets to attract people to bet on racing. So uh, they, I think, generally feel as though it's just something they don't have to do. And nothing is necessarily going to change this unless either governments or racing commissions get involved and start asking the questions as opposed to accepting the status quo. And the horsemen, frankly, are complicit in this as well. A lot of the time, the mentality is, this is the money I've always been getting. This is the money I deserve. You better give it to me. 
um, it's it's kind of a next quarter type mentality as opposed to thinking what the next decade for this sport is going to look like. Now, one of the topics that we as a think tank for the sport have proposed is changing the element of breakage. And this is a topic that occasionally gets discussed as one of those great farces of gambling and one of the great all-time theft jobs. Um, one person even called it legalized larceny um, of tote breakage, which is essentially that for every winning bet, um, the amount gets rounded down in many cases to the nearest 20 cents. And so if a bet were to come back and pay, you know, justify wins the pre mistakes, he pays 260 to win, let's say. Um, but without, um, you know, if, if we got a raw figure on that, yeah, there's an 18% win takeout. But there is also a breakage. So if we do the raw number, it may have come out to say that for every um, $2 bet on Justify, the winning better deserves or would have gotten $2.78. But the rule is you round down to the nearest 20 cent increment, and then the state, really the bet taker, if, if you've made the bet at Pimlico, um, but whoever, wherever the bet is being uh, made, gets to hold back that loose and leftover change. Well, on a bet that returns 278 instead of 260, suddenly we're talking about a legitimate, you know, getting into the near four or five percent of your profit that is just being retained after I've already taken the 18 percent enforced mandatory takeout. Now I have an effective takeout that could be a heck of a lot higher. And this happens on every bet in every pool every day in horse racing in America. And they've done it forever. That number actually is about $50 million a year uh, that is being retained. Now, if you churned $50 million back into tote pools at a blended 20% takeout, just by giving back that loose change, it would equate to the single largest increase in annual betting turnover in America in basically all but one of the last uh, 14, 15 years. And this is this, the status quo that has existed in, and, and has done so for a long time. Now, I'll say that, Jake, with one exception, and that is the state of New York. In 1994, Stephen Christ, who at the time was uh, with the racing form and formerly of, uh, of Naira, uh, got involved uh, in Mario Cuomo's commission to reform racing going into the 21st century. And one of the things they said is, gosh, we just have to change this. We have been stealing loose change from our customers for years. Is there a new way we could we could do this? And they created uh, a model that has not been replicated by any single jurisdiction in America. And it takes breakage based on the return. So for all bets made in New York, on New York thoroughbred racing, either in the Naira tracks, Belmont Aqueduct, Saratoga, or at Finger Lakes, um, every bet under $10 breaks $0.05 to every dollar, so a dime on a $2 win bet. So it's the only place in America where you will see a thoroughbred race return $9.90, $9.70, or $9.50, as well as $9.80, $9.60, and $9.40. They have given back countless millions of dollars, essentially in loose change to their customers over the last 25 years. And when we published our white paper a year ago that said we need to go to a penny breakage system, um, it was a bit, you know, there were definitely some well-regarded bettors who many of them, you know, the highest end bettors in America negotiate breakage back. So that should tell you that some people think it's, it's valuable and meaningful, but the, the average customers and the mid-level customers, they've, they have been getting a raw deal for a long, long time. And we're in the process of talking with New York and the New York Racing Association about potentially changing this. And that only on those returns under $10, instead of holding back a nickel for every dollar, why don't we drop it to a penny for every dollar? It would be the largest single return of money to horse racing gamblers ever. Uh, there's an opportunity. They're considering it. It requires some statutory change and some statutory work. Um, but the, the, they're looking and they've at least been receptive to the dialogue and the discussion. So it's about taking their existing policy and just going one step farther to really 
kind of hit home and 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 show some regard for the horse player because they have been uh, dealt a bad bad pricing hand for a very long time. So you said that that certain players can negotiate that breakage back. More generally on this topic of whether it's rebates, whether it's something like negotiating the breakage back. In 2019, how do you feel about this area moving forward? Do you think it's something that should be offered more broadly, let's say? I know that you know certain people have discussed publicly about certain syndicates, certain people, certain professionals who will obviously increase liquidity and want to play in certain markets or certain pools uh, being able to do that. Do you think that that's something we should be opening more broadly or, or how does the, the foundation as well think about this topic generally? The sport needs to be priced better full stop. Okay. It needs to be priced in a market. You know, it would be very difficult to attract people to this product um, that have not bet on racing if you are not offering them a fixed odds alternative, uh, if you have somebody that's been very attracted to betting football, basketball, tennis, what have you, to give them a racing product where they do not know what their potential return is until 20 seconds after the race has started, that's a tough sell okay? Uh, to the existing customer uh, the, the racetracks and the ADWs, the advanced deposit wagering firms like Twin Spires, like ExpressBet, um, there is no hiding the fact that they have negotiated more favorable deals to professional players. The professional players have admitted as such time and time again. They negotiate breakage back and they get, they get better deals. And there's a valid reason to understand why that has happened. Because you know, these customers are meaningful and valuable to the bottom line. But um, it's being done and, and pricing is being kind of kept where it is at the expense of the majority of the actual players. Maybe, you know, maybe they represent 65% of the overall handle, but they might only be uh, – and they may be 95% of the customer base, 98% of the customer base, but um, – you know, by 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 having those deals with some players, they're certainly recognizing that pricing matters, and that their participation in the sport and and to help turnover along the way matters. That they need to price things appropriately to keep those people involved. The problem is, if they don't find that to be advantageous any longer, if those people stop playing, if they start moving to something else, if they move offshore, then you have a group and a very large foundational base. Your weekend warriors who essentially are getting nothing, who you've neglected for years and years and years, and you've introduced higher takeout, higher churn bets, or lower churn bets, jackpot bets, bets that have effective takeouts of 40 and 50%, and eventually give up. And it's very difficult to argue that the current model has worked when you consider that overall, uh, you know, inflation-adjusted handle is down 50%. So uh, in, in a fairly short period of time, and now you have this renaissance, this legalized uh, wave of sports betting that is coming in that is presenting customers with widely distributed sports, legal bets, lots of options where everybody knows what they're going to get if they win as soon as they make their bet. Uh, racing needs to find a way to engage that and embrace that. That is an opportunity for the future. But I think many in racing look at it as a threat because their guaranteed source of revenue isn't there. They've been getting that for a long time, but the world's changing and we need to change with it. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Obviously, with, with handle going down and embedding numbers on the decline, the state of play is potentially going in the same direction or certainly there's more challenges, there's more competition along certainly in the U.S. anyway, coming along the lines of, of sports, do you think that... So if, I'll give you a very basic example. The the average weekend warrior who comes to the track with 10 bucks and has a chance to leave with 20 but on average will leave with $9 versus the average weekend warrior who comes to the track with 10 bucks, chance to win 100 but will leave with $1 on average, and obviously very you know extreme examples. But in terms of churn, what's the optimal or most efficient way to handle it given the current state of play we find ourselves in this day and age? I, I, don't, I don't have that exact answer, Jake. Um, 
the optimal uh, is like I, I don't think there's any question that what we're doing now is is clearly suboptimal. Um, but the exact mix and match for the future has to be different than what we've been doing. And yet what I find incredibly uh, frustrating in my role now, having kind of emerged out of this three-year international cocoon of, of horse racing kind of excellence and coming back into America is this fear to change, a fear to embrace a new way, to try things. Um, you would think that what we've been doing has been, as an industry in America, has been incredibly successful. You would think that 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 racing turnover has been up six percent year over year for the last uh, decade and a half, and that there's no history of declines, and and people are actually afraid to change. And this is includes regulators. I mean, we're talking at the commission level, um, legislators, and and certainly at the operator level, that people simply do not want to take chances for fear that they would lose even more. And it is, I, I, I cannot explain it. It is not a rational uh, decision. Um, but, but that is the way in which the, the industry has acted um, for, for quite some time. And so when you can find uh, a canary in the proverbial coal mine of someone who is willing to do something a little bit different, latch on and, and, and try to drive that change as much as you can. Now, so our organization has certainly embraced modernizing. That involves uh, fixed odds wagering on racing, exchange wagering on racing, uh, freeing the shackles on data. I mean, the world's most expensive daily newspaper is the daily racing form. Okay, in certain places, you spend $11 <laughs> wow. a day. For the daily racing form, it is it is the most expensive newspaper in the world. Okay, now there was a time when it used to be broadsheet, it used to be tabloid form, and now it's like a little booklet, and it's still the most expensive daily newspaper in the world. Um, you know, people people can go onto Equibase and, and try and buy a a day pass to to have access to all this information for the tracks, thirty dollars a day. Yikes. Now you can you can inform yourself, and we even uh, we quoted uh, the, the the great uh, better Maury Wolf, who uh, um, Maury is is a bit of a legend, uh, certainly in in horse racing circles. But I know he he loves his his baseball and um, has has done a lot of work with Roxy Roxborough, and they've been partners for a long time. And um, Maury said straight up, uh, you know, for the cost of uh, twenty copies of the daily racing form. So 20 days of horse racing, I can inform myself for an entire year, uh, on major league baseball information. I can, I can subscribe to all the services that I want and have a little bit left over for a couple coffees. So I, I can have all my information for, for an entire 3000 game baseball season where I get 20 days of horse racing. And when you look at the numbers and you see where the metrics are and you see the direction in which we're traveling, um, you know, it becomes pretty clear who's been making the right decisions and, and who isn't. Um, so the status quo there, I think, just has to has to change dramatically. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good example. Uh, what about on the innovation side? Are there some initiatives that you're aware of or that you might be working with or alongside that you're very optimistic about? I know there's certainly always challenges and hurdles and and it's certainly not perfect in many respects, but what about on the, uh, the the newer products, the newer thinkers, the newer people, the newer businesses that you're sort of aware of that are pushing the boundaries in this space? Without question, the, the place where I'm seeing kind of the most innovation, the, the greatest kind of thought leadership directly from the horse racing industry is actually happening in Canada. Um, it's happening in Ontario with Woodbine Entertainment which, you know, Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. They have a great racetrack. They have a tremendously dynamic leader in Jim Lawson, who's also the chairman of the Canadian Football League, and a really um, innovative team that he has built around him to really kind of change, change that whole business, the property. They have a tremendous amount of land there. And they are currently, I was just up there a couple of weeks ago, um, they're soon to be launching um, a beta 
uh, for an app that they have. Uh, it's called Play Dark Horse. I guess it's called Dark Horse, but the, the website's playdarkhorse.com. I think there's like a promo video up right now, um, which is just sort of getting into the, the basics of what it's going to be. But it, it's essentially, it is an app that is designed to engage people who are not normally horse racing betters to uh, engage the sport, to basically um, drive bets to them directly and say, I want to spend about $40. I want to take a medium level of risk. I would like to be able to earn $250 if everything turns out to be right. Um, can you structure a series of bets for me based on this? And the app will do this for you. It will uh, go through its own data sources and try to project what the different bets will, would come out to be, but basically hand you a series of tickets and say, for $40, here is what you can get. And you say, yep, just place the bets, off you go. And there you have it. Um, so it is it is not designed for existing horse players. It is, it is designed for people who would be interested in either the gaming side or the wagering side, but who are, you know, not, they're on the outside looking in right now. Um, and it's a way to present kind of a, a more intelligent way of approaching it using technology, using AI and, uh, and some algorithms to kind of drive that. So I really like what I've seen up there. And, and Jim and, and the group at Woodbine is also kind of at the forefront of trying to lead the change of, of standardizing the interference rules in the sport. I mean, this is this is pretty basic. But for your listeners that don't know, the current status quo in horse racing in North America is essentially this, and I'll make the, uh, the comparison to football. Imagine if a holding penalty in football was based on a set of rules that were dictated by each stadium. So holding at the Superdome was this, holding at MetLife Stadium was that, and it changed every week based on the stadium in which it played. That is the situation that we have in horse racing where the individual states have their own rules about what is or is not a foul. And there is this movement to basically try and standardize a single global rule that uh, identifies what is or is not uh, a disqualifiable offense in a race. And uh, right now, every major racing jurisdiction on the planet has done it with the exception of the U.S. and Canada. And Jim and his team have worked with the regulator up there, and I think they're investigating it right now and going through some due diligence. But um, it's something that we've been advocating for and, and that Jim just thinks is, is necessary up there. So uh, Jim has been a, a, a tremendous supporter of our organization, and um, I just don't see the innovation and, and the attention to, to something new, fresh, uh, innovative approach. And it's coming from someone, Jake, who is outside of the sport originally. You know, I mean, he, his family has been involved in, in racing and breeding, but, you know, he, Jim played hockey and, and, and was an attorney and is chairman of the Canadian Football League. He's bringing in a lot of other um, resources and experience to horse racing and putting together a great team. So I would say that the, the, the greatest kind of source of, of innovation, both actual and from a thought leadership standpoint, is, is coming from up in Canada. What about getting people more involved in the the handicapping side of racing? The you know those people in Hong Kong who you probably witnessed every single day at Happy Valley and Sha Tin, looking at the uh, hopefully cheaper form guide than eleven bucks, and really, really deeply involved in what is going on from a form perspective, from a price perspective on the betting side, on looking at every single different variable you can imagine, and they're truly ingrained in horse racing, you know, every day, uh, whether they, whether they like to admit it or not, is there any initiatives on that front that you can identify that are, you know, obviously dark horse sounds like it's very tailored towards those that, um, may not be actively involved already. And hopefully that can translate or there can be a transition from that to wanting to understand more about the, the handicapping side and be more deeply involved. But, those that have that passion that you described and a lot of people I've spoken to have that passion that's sort of carried through for decades, but getting someone who may not have started out with that passion, is there any way to get them more actively involved in, in horse racing? The key to this, I think, comes down to, to Equibase, which is the, the industry, the North American racing industry's uh, quote-unquote data provider. 
um, data collector and data provider, and they have essentially put you know some pretty tough shackles on data in the sport and the ability to analyze um, racing information on your own. Uh, in March, we published a paper that that said um, our, our main recommendation essentially was that Equibase should provide raw data feeds uh, to private non-commercial users. So if I want to use this for my own analysis, my own research, my own betting, fine. If you're going to commercialize something, of course, there needs to be a separate agreement of that. But if, if I wanted to put this out there and I want to give this to MIT grad students, why aren't we giving it to them? Why aren't we opening this up to universities to study the last 10 years of racing data in in North America, um, you know, part of this push for greater transparency in the sport, I mean, that's a whole other topic, and I, I know we don't have the time to get into it, but, you know, horse racing needs far greater transparency than what it has right now. But the information situation is tied up. I mean, we present our information. Is it free? Can you get basic free race results? Yeah, you can. You have to open up a PDF file for every race. Okay, think about that. If I want to look up the day's results of any particular track, I have to open up a PDF uh, of, of what happened on that day at Churchill Downs. It is tied up. It is bound. And it, it's essentially it's held hostage at, at ridiculous price points. I mean, the numbers I've heard between maybe three to $6,000 a month to get a data feed to, to inform your decisions, to allow you to study these things. Again, the metrics of the sport say one thing. The actions suggest that things have been going great and we just need to keep going down this road and, and that there are customers that are willing to pay for this. Um, but yet we are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking And uh, while the competition is rising around us. So I think information, the, the data can really set us free. We've started a, a new initiative. It's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, hashtag Free Data Fridays. We started it uh, two weeks ago, and, and we're, you know, every Friday we're going to come out with a with a story, an anecdote, something from overseas, uh, what other people are doing in other sports or other racing jurisdictions, and how information is out there and available. Racing fans want to use modern day processing power, um, uh, the, all of the tools that are available to them, and frankly are presented in other sports. Um, the amount of information you can get for free or relatively low cost is unbelievable. Why aren't we presenting our sport in the same light at an affordable price point or perhaps better, no price point at all? As long as I'm not reselling the information, the data, then, then I need a commercial agreement. So I, I think it's, it's just so absolutely strikingly obvious. And the thing is, Equibase is owned by a conglomerate of the jockey club and an organization of racetracks. So these are elements that are going to benefit directly from increased betting turnover anyway. Uh, a couple of years ago when we published this, uh, you know, there was an announcement that, you know, that the racetracks were, were sharing maybe a $4 million a year, $5 million a year dividend from their data sales. Um, yeah, maybe that number's gone up. I don't know. It, it's tough to get exact answers on these things. The records certainly aren't public or transparent. But you know, wouldn't we be better off if we were driving this data spend that the racetracks are benefiting from through the tote windows, through the betting channels, and creating a far more sustainable future for our business than just saying, oh, this is a data business and we're just going to milk this for everything we got while we can. Yeah, it seems obvious that four or five million or six or seven million a year in data sales versus another 25 50 75 100 million in increased dividends from from betting turnover is a no-brainer but as these things go sometimes that uh that doesn't rise to the surface as quickly as some would hope so one final question for you what do you think from a self-evaluation perspective for the the foundation and just generally moving forward what will you deem to be a success you know in one three five years from now uh with some of the work you're doing and obviously I think there's things that are achievable and there are other things that would be nice to have done, but probably not necessarily achievable in such a, a short period of time. But what are some of the things you're hoping for that you think are achievable and that you want to get towards in the next handful of years? 
the pricing topic, Jake, is probably the one that is is the most the the, the toughest to really get get through and, and and get people on board with. So I'll put that aside for a second. For us, it's really about a far increased transparency in the sport and far increased product development. So what I mean is, uh, to us, some real success, some measurable success is if we see jurisdictions that start to adopt the Category 1 interference rules philosophy, like what I said, Canada's and Ontario is starting to, to push towards, if, if we can see adoption of that, if we can see much greater transparency on the behalf of the stewards, the way in which they adjudicate races, how they communicate information, uh, at, you know, the decision made by the stewards in the Kentucky Derby this year was probably the right decision based on the rules, but everything else about the process the deliberations, the public announcements, the way in which it was handled from a public transparency standpoint, was terrible. Uh, if we want to be treated like a professional sport, we need to act like it. And we're not doing that at present. We really need to clean up our house from a transparency perspective. That's one element. And, and, and if we can see some adoption in that, uh, and that's really what we continue to push at the legislative and at the uh, commission uh, regulatory level. Uh, we're continuing to do that. And then secondly, it, it really does come down to the fixed odds offerings. Um, this week, I'm, I'm speaking at the uh, Kentucky State Legislature, I've been invited to speak on perhaps horse racing's role in a fixed odds future in Kentucky and, and what's out there. And, and I know there are some racetracks that, that really don't want that. And there are some horsemen's groups that really don't want that. Uh, because they've been happy with the status quo, they enjoy the status quo, and they, they want maybe full control over it. Um, but to us, um, it, it needs to be far more open, far more free market uh, when it comes to the options that are presented to our customers. And, um, you know, in light of, of everything that's out there. So for us, success would be if we start seeing fixed odds development in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Kentucky, tied in with the Breeders' Cup, um, tied in with the Kentucky Derby. If, if we start seeing some growth in that area, I think that would be a really strong um, – it's been a, a big po focus of our advocacy platform. So if, if we can see that kind of come to fruition and keep pushing in that direction, that uh, the, the transparency and product development would be the, the two main areas we're really focused on. So people can go to racingthinktank.com and, and check that out. Um, I was reading through some of the transparency documents you have on there. I think some of them are published four or five weeks ago now, so they can check that out, obviously, on Twitter. Is that the best way to get in touch? Because I'm guessing some people have some ideas or want to – you can submit ideas on the website, I believe. You can certainly engage that way. Is that the best way to do it? For sure. Um, and just you know, straight up, you can email us, uh, basic Gmail account, thoroughbredideafoundation at gmail.com. can email us. We're happy to hear from folks, and, and we, we hear ideas. We engage with people that send us things all the time. I assure you some of them are, are, are out in left field, and some of them make a heck of a lot of sense. And um, these sorts of things, we report back to our board on the ideas that are submitted to us and what we hear and, and what we're kind of pushing for and advocating for. So it is all part of that process. We have a very dynamic board, a, a real cross-section of the industry that's engaged in the future of the sport. A lot of people that invest a lot of money in those hard assets, the horses themselves, they want to see a future that is far better than what we've experienced today and what we uh, have had in the last decade or so. So um, we need change and we continue to advocate for it and, and we need the, the – uh, the support of anybody that's out there that, you know, a good, a good horse can come from anywhere, Jake, so can a good idea. Um, we, we can't, we can't close ourselves off to them. Absolutely. No, continue fighting the good fight. It's certainly a, uh, it's an industry that needs everyone they can get. And I think, you know, we could easily have lost you to the investment banking world or other industry. And <laughs> I think we're lucky to, to have you around still. And I think there's probably for every one of yourself, there's probably two or three dozen that we did lose. So, Unfortunately, you know, even I would love to be working in horse racing if it was a, a thriving top tier industry. And that doesn't mean that people shouldn't. But, um, you know, there are other things that are out there that are pulling and pushing people in, in different directions. So the more we can focus on it. And if for me, nothing else but doing a podcast every now and then with, with the likes of yourself uh, helps even a very tiny percentage, then uh, I'm, I'm very, <laughs> very happy to be able to do even just a tiny, small thing like that. Well, I'll say, Jake, I, I had the pleasure. Someone turned me on to your podcast uh, when I was in Hong Kong and said, uh, 
you got to check this out if you've listened to this business of betting podcast and and so I, I've been a, a follower for the last couple of years uh, as you've developed this and it's uh, it's been a lot of fun so so certainly you keep it up too because it's the tremendous learning opportunity everybody's got a story in this in this industry and oftentimes people are very passionate about it and it's great to hear those and hear those stories and the passion and the history and, and the ideas for the future so um, look it's a uh, it's a mutual admiration industry. Um, we, we like people in this business and, and we like to hear the stories and it helps make us all better. And, uh, you know, look, past performance is an indicator of future returns. We've got to see what happened in the past and, and, and judge from it and adjust from it, uh, adjust to it in, in the future. Um, so I appreciate what you've done as well. Absolutely. Patrick, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jim.